The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen speaking peoples, the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, BC, Canada. Mm, this is a really sweet episode, my friends. I get to introduce you to someone who is very, very dear to me. Orly Richards is a writer, educator, beekeeper, witch, performer, community builder, gardener, and wounded healer. She's a Jewish woman with trans experience living in Germany. She's long been an advocate for queer rights, trans community building, and domestic violence prevention, especially in rural and small town contexts. She's also a coach who works with individuals, groups, NGOs, and businesses wanting to develop intentional leadership, smoothly navigate change management, and integrate mindfulness and somatic coaching into their organizations. Also, she's a core team member for one of my projects, the Numinous Network. There she is present as a welcomer, a space holder, a project manager. She helps people get oriented and feel at home. We call her the Network Nymph. So she sprinkles magic on everything and makes it run smoothly and gently. And um, she does all the tech backup stuff, backend stuff, but she also does a lot of the relational stuff of collecting people before we direct them into how to navigate the network. So Orly heard something I said in my last episode with Nakaya that gave her pause and she offered me some feedback. And it was such a great continuation of that episode and also of a conversation that Orly and I had been having over email, like maybe like a year before. And I appreciated her feedback and the continuation of that conversation so much. And I felt so many people would also really benefit as I did from hearing her perspective and her wisdom. So without further ado, here is a conversation with the lovely and enchanting Numinous Network nymph, Orly Richards. So Orly, what identities do you lead with? I love this question, <laughs> um, especially because of the way you frame it. Um, because, yeah, I often feel like um, there's a lot of talk about identity. And if I were to just sort of give the like laundry list of identities that I hold, um, sometimes it begins to feel a little bit like either a rap sheet or maybe sometimes even like an identitarian politics, like kind of showing off. <laughs> or... Identitarian politics. Oh, my gosh. This is the first time I've heard that phrase. I love it. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, I don't love right. it, but I just, <laughs> yeah, but I totally get the gist. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And like the what I'm leading with can be sort of like this month or today or a couple hours ago, because I was on the clock, and now I'm hanging out talking with Carmen. Um, and yeah, so, um, but yeah, I mean, I think the identities um, I lead with, yeah, are pretty consistent, where um, women is one that I lead with. Um, but it's also like women who arrived at, but also continues to arrive in really, really surprising and embodied, um, confusing sometimes ways at womanhood um, through mm. a trans experience. Um, 
Mm. And that's like a really lengthy and wordy way of saying that I'm a trans woman. Um, but I actually don't so much like that formulation. Um, I lead with women um, and I, I happen to have a trans experience. Um, and um, yeah, that's an important distinction actually. And I think it'll like sort of like lead into more conversation maybe later. Um, and um, yeah, so I am uh, white um, and or depending on what communities I'm talking with, I will often um, talk about being white appearing. Um, I definitely hold the privilege um, as a like social self around like I have whiteness, I benefit from that. Um, and like inwardly, I also have to reconcile with um, uh, Native American heritage, my grandmother's Cherokee, um, and I also hold that ancestry. I'm super careful with saying that I lead with this as an identity, um, mm -hmm. because while I'm Cherokee Nation, I did not grow up on res, I don't speak the language, um, and yeah, I'm just super careful around I've got loads of privilege um, and it's not actually an identity I need to like take up space with depending on mm. which communities I'm in and who I'm talking to. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, that's further complicated by <laughs> recently my family has done a lot of work on um, like where our family comes from and like gripping my chest because it's still so hard. Um, I knew it, but it's still so hard to really know the details. Uh, which is that my Anglo-Celtic descendants, um, the Carters, most notably, um, the first instance of that paternal line on Turtle Island is recorded in 1605. Um, and that, that's the, like my Welsh family, um, they survived Jamestown. Um, they were like uh, cartographers that went over to like the first British colony. Um, and um, after they survived Jamestown, they went back to Devonshire. Um, and then uh, 10 years later, after they recovered financially, came back to um, what were then the British colonies. Um, Whoa. So I did the math on this. Um, that means I'm a 19th generation settler um, on Whoa. my dad's side. <laughs> oh, yeah, that feels thick and heavy. heavy. Yeah. Um, yeah, especially as, you know, it's like someone who also identifies or has the identity of immigrant. Um, I'm living in Germany. I choose immigrant rather than um, expat. I feel like for certain folks who like rock up to a country, they don't really feel like learning the language because everybody speaks English now. So I won't learn the language or I won't learn about the laws and customs and culture and history. Um, expat comes with a lot of privilege yeah and mm -hmm. it usually is like white educated young um folks with money coming up to a country and just saying like i live here now i'm an expat but i still like on some level identify with and have ties to the country i came from i actually don't have a ton of ties other than actually through like numinous network uh folks um <laughs> and some friends uh, still in vermont where i lived for a long time um uh I, I definitely have an immigrant experience um, to survive in Germany. I definitely had to learn German. Um, I definitely had to learn the customs and the rules and the, the history uh, to get on. Um, I think that just comes with, you know, as like, having a trans identity um, and not being a moneyed person, um, definitely like um, have to work. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's actually 
important to like make that distinction between expat and immigrant while also not taking away that there's tons of people coming to this country right now that have a very different mm -hmm. immigrant background as I do. I have a U.S. passport and that's a super strong mm -hmm. uh, privileged passport. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's like nuance for sure. But I'd say like immigrant is an identity that I, I have to lead with. Um, mm. Yeah. And um on the note of being like a privileged immigrant, I also work in the art sector. Um, the like Germany has a very like lively art sector. I identify as an artist. Um, I make ecological art um, that's very place-based, that's community oriented. Um, we do a lot of interspecies justice and getting um, people to participate and interact with um, species within a garden or a place. And we do art projects um, that are about that with my collective here. Um, Club Real uh, in Berlin. Um, and we're actually right now doing a study on um, deep time. So um, like mm -hmm. soil, we're doing a lot of research on geology and actually trying to mm -hmm. go beyond the realm of the, the living and species and more into um, how deep can we go into this place mm -hmm. um, and getting people to, um, through um, uh, art installations um, and interactive mm -hmm. art installations, um, think about some of those themes. Um, and um, and what I bring to um, a lot of that work, um, either with my collective or in my individual work, is um, I have a, have a long time background with um, meditation. Um, mm -hmm. I spent uh, a year as a Zen monastic resident in the Plum Village tradition, actually in one of the centers in North America. Um, I've been a student of Thich Nhat Hanh for, oh, how old am I? I guess it's been, well, since I was 16, I'm 34, math. Eek. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I took the five mindfulness trainings when I was 16. I lived as a Zen monastic, um, as a, a, a novice actually, so I didn't fully ordain as a bhikshu. Um, but I, um, I also then a year later when I decided not to fully ordain, took that monastic life to a sister center um, in New Hampshire. That's how I got to New England, um, mm. where. Um, I helped some friends start a permaculture center that was also doing mindfulness education and outreach uh, in the region. Um, so there's always been this intersection of art making, community building, meditation, and Buddhist principles. Um, yeah. And, um, and you're also a student now. Right. Yes. Um, I am now an acupuncture student just to like, there's all the different hats. Uh, <laughs> Uh, because I don't do enough and move around enough and <laughs> constantly striving. Um, yes, I have embarked on um, uh, studying Chinese medicine um, at a center here in Berlin. Um, and uh, I'm not sure where that's taking me at the moment. I'm not sure that I even, I use that like lead with that as an identity. Um, hmm. Yeah, it, it's this thing where I started thinking about going back to school. I had um, done a certificate program in shiatsu, um, and shiatsu just wasn't so my thing, but I really, really loved mm. the theory. Um, and so mm. now revisiting going and doing acupuncture, it's like duck to water. I just, I, mm. I totally know this is exactly what I should be doing. Um, mm. And there's so much resonance. And at the same time, um, it's one of those things where 
it, it is truly like duck to water because you know like you watch a duck kind of like waddle up clumsily to something and then it just sort of like <laughs> takes off and because it's so used to just taking off it doesn't like yeah it's just a duck and it's swimming on water now um but because I'm not actually a duck I kind of feel there's part of me that feels a little bit like when is the choppy water going to come like when is it going to get hard mm. and when am I going to change my mind about this and hate it and that doesn't happen so far um and I think maybe I'm just an acupuncturist and and I, I finally like <laughs> Didn't know finally it. found the thing um right you're like a little duckling that imprinted onto a cap <laughs> exactly. and now you've like waddled on up to the the side of the stream and you're like wait hold on what <laughs> yeah hang on a second meow. amazing <laughs> yeah <laughs> wait I don't meow um, <laughs> So, okay, for, for context for folks, so you, you are what, what I would call like my um, right hand is like, it's a little bit too kind of, I don't know, technical or something, but you're my confidant, you're my, you're my person and uh, the, the one that I trust to hold down the numinous network for me, particularly from like the structural, the relational with all the um, kind of resident teachers we have. You're like tracking everybody in the network uh, while I have my book happening, all that kind of stuff. And so you're, you just, it doesn't surprise me, but I'm always just like delighted and bemused when you're like, oh yes, I've done the um, contract for, you know, this new staff member we're bringing on and um, here's all the Canadian tax law and here's all the American tax law and here. And like your contract, you're like, oh yes, for German law, I have to have this. And it's all like in German and English with like Canadian tax law. I was like, what? So, and you are like a technological marvel. Like I'm, you know, I'm not um, a digital native, but I was there for the early stages of the mainstreaming of the internet. And so at least in, you know, average Canadian household, which, you know, I recognize is different than say a California experience, but you just know, like <laughs> coding and all this stuff. It makes me often wonder, what is your educational background? Why are you such a polymath? Like, why are you so good at so many things? <laughs> what, how did this happen? <laughs> how did you happen? So this is amazingly high praise from the very praiseworthy, and I am blushing unbelievably. <laughs> how do I even begin to answer this? Okay, it is such an honor um, to help you with the Numinous Network. Um, it feels, um, yes, yeah, so resonant and so nourishing. And I have these moments when I'm working um, in the network or I'm helping somebody out, figure something out, or I'm setting up a meeting, I'm doing the scheduling, whatever. It'll be all of these busy moments where there'll be an uptick in activity in the network. And I just think like, I am so happy that I get to do this. And so honored that like mm. Carmen has entrusted me to do this. And um, yeah, it's really, really a joy. Um, and so I wanted to say that. Um, and um, so in terms of like the different um, things that I sort of bring in, so like backing up a little bit with the tech stuff, um, <laughs> I actually have a BFA. I have a fine arts degree. <laughs> um, I went to the Tisch School of the Arts at um, New York University. Um, I studied dance and then had a second major in philosophy. Um, 
So none of the surprises me. This all also makes sense. You can just keep folding and stuff. If you were like, <laughs> and I also worked at, you know, um, in the underground resistance against, you know, digital. I'm also a member of Anonymous. I'd be like, yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <I> no, <laughs> no, it's great. I and then so actually this thing about digital native, I definitely am. Even though, so I was born in 1987. Technically, the internet was around. Like in terms of, I don't know that we were sending emails yet. It was it was there, but it hadn't been rolled out in any sort of like massively public way. Um, there's a picture of me when I was three years old, and I've got my hands on a keyboard. My dad, hi dad, um, is a, <laughs> a software engineer, and so I grew up with computers around. I grew up with books on C plus plus and um, JavaScript and HTML, like HTML in its early days. Um, there were just like books and books and stacks more of books um, on coding languages and. It's actually really funny, like as a joke on OkCupid, this like dating app, um, you can put whatever you like, what languages do you speak? And one of them is C++. Um, and it's, it's a joke, um, but I haven't checked off because it's true. Um, <laughs> um, it's just a way of signaling, like you're a nerd. I want to connect with other tech right. Yeah. Um, right. But, you know, actually to, since we're on the Numinous podcast, to answer that question numinously, um, Honestly, the reason I do so much and I've learned so much is because like patriarchal capitalism and I've had to hustle, um, mm. especially with a fine arts degree where like dance wasn't paying the bills. Um, and like, I had to learn how to do a lot of different things in different ways when I was asked to do them. And sometimes like on the fly, on the job, um, for example, like to fund my transition, like in order to access um, medical care as a trans person in the US, you have to be in a state that's really, really um, friendly with its um, Medicaid programs, um, or you have to um, get a job and get really good insurance through your employer. Um, so I took a job that it was just sort of, I never would have imagined doing, but at the time there was a manufacturing boom in the US. And so I took a job in a factory um, for natural cosmetics. Um, and I was a quality assurance specialist. Um, and that's like, oh gosh, like, that, oh my yeah. God, that also doesn't <laughs> surprise me in a natural cosmetics. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. That's like what you're doing now mm. <laughs> in the network. I'm a QA oh specialist, but for like numinous stuff. <laughs> for people. Yeah, exactly. For people's spiritual yeah. lives. Wow. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, honestly, it actually has a lot to do with just sort of um, being yes educated but a lot of my family background is working class and one of the first people actually to get a university degree in my family um a lot of it just has to do with struggling and hustling um to mm. get by in capitalism um hmm. and um i i would like to say yeah yes of course i i'm interested in those things and i've taken them on with like um, a lot of rigor and integrity just i think that has a lot to do with my i'm just a very curious person and gifted in the sense of like I, I was gifted I don't know through family or upbringing I don't know um but a very capable mind and I value that really highly um and but yeah it really just boils down to um I graduated university in the middle of the great recession um right around the time mm -hmm. you were um, having trouble with your business I think we were probably like mm -hmm. in the trenches together and just didn't know it um mm -hmm. yeah um and you gotta find a way or make a way exactly Mm -hmm. yeah 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 wow we're like 17 minutes in and people's minds must be like Phew. anyway I'm so excited to to 
have you finally here on the show. Okay, so let's give folks the backgrounder on the conversation we wanted to have here today. So the last episode that I did with Nakaya, I'm going to play a clip of a section of it where I was sharing my experience of leading a group somatic session, embodied attachment session, and I said a cue. And I got feedback immediately during that class, which, you know, as a person who I just have a ton of different places, access points for people to give me feedback. I don't know if everybody has this experience where you just have like, you're exposed to a lot of groups of people. And so, you know, some of them, it's like a a newsletter list of a few thousand people who you can put out a newsletter and you can get feedback from that. But also, you know, I, I have a network of a few hundred people. I have long time clients and students. I have team members. I have, I'm also a community um, neighborhood association board member. Like there's just like so many areas where groups can tell me how I'm doing directly or or indirectly, which is why you now answer my newsletter emails. Because it's kind of like, you know, if a person's known me five minutes or has never been in space with me, like I actually, um, well, you know, you, you quoted Tolkien earlier, like the praise of the praiseworthy is beyond all reward. But I also think the feedback of the praiseworthy like matters more to me, the people that I'm in direct relationship with. It's like, I just don't have the capacity to receive the volume and frequency and detail of feedback people want to give me about my experience. So when I'm in the process of teaching, it can be a little jarring to get feedback like immediately when I'm like holding space, um, especially through a chat function. Cause I it, like, that's a whole other kind of thing anyway. So I was sharing about that experience on the last episode with Nakaya and um, I, I'm going to play the clip. I think if we're um, being honest with ourselves, sometimes there can be like a very quick urge to correct. And, um, you know, I, so I was leading uh, somatics uh, one day online as I do in the network. And one of the prompts I gave is like, so if you have been conditioned to be a good girl or a good boy, you know, um, or a good student, and you want to say no to that identity, this is your opportunity you can just lay that down now. And somebody in the chat private messaged me while I was in the middle of teaching and was like, oh, just so you know, a better gender neutral term than girl or boy would be child. And in my mind, I was like, okay, thank you. However, I meant what I said. If you were conditioned as girl and you're like, no, thank you. If you were conditioned as boy and you were like, no, thank you. But there was like this kind of reflexive urge to correct me because I use the term girl or boy without actually listening to like, what am I saying? I'm saying if you reject that conditioning and identity, this is your chance to say, no, thank you. And so push your arms out and da, da, da. Okay. So after that episode, um, within a couple of days, um, I got an email from you titled Feedback from Mishka. And the first thing I want to say is that you give such good feedback. And 
And I'm always very, as a person who receives a lot of feedback, when people deliver it in such an elegant and compassionate and kind way, I always kind of worry that I'm like, oh, why do they have to be so good and careful? They've obviously been like, had their heads bitten off or, you know, there, there's obviously been conditions in which it's so unsafe for them to give feedback that they've become experts at delivering feedback and you are an expert in delivering feedback. So, um, I want to thank you. And I also want to say like, I'm really sorry that you have to be so good for whatever the conditions are that have, you know, um, influenced you becoming so great with your words. Um, do you want to read some of the feedback? And actually, hold on a second. That was a really lovely acknowledgement. Um, I, I know that the, like, this word is flying around um, like on YouTube and the blogosphere and it's kind of overused at this point and we're all wondering like, what does this word even mean? And I'd like to describe my difficult experiences on my own terms, um, but like narcissism. Um, I have been a narcissist magnet my entire life. And that has a lot to do with um, hashtag crazy mom. Um, and um, yeah, just thanks for that acknowledgement um, that like, while it's, it is a gift to have people in your life that have really become very good at the, like what John Gottman calls the soft startup. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like my start startups are <laughs> super soft. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's, um, that is learned. And sometimes it is, sometimes it's just sort of like, actually, you know what? The research shows us that a soft startup will help feedback go in deeper and you'll actually get better results. Mm -hmm. And sometimes actually um, it's a fond response. It's part of the, the F's the you know fear like uh, what is it yeah flight fight um freeze and fun um <laughs> um yeah so thanks for that acknowledgement um it feels really uh important um the email let's start with um so yeah you've already prefaced um about the conversation and so i wrote um this the thing about boys and girls and the topic of conditioning, womp. <laughs> I said, um, for me, it does irk me when I hear conditioned as a boy or conditioned as a girl, and there isn't a third option put out there. Um, I was assigned male at birth, but was maybe 12% conditioned as a boy. My dad was a human teddy bear, so, I wasn't in the, so it wasn't in the home. And when the greater society tried to make me a quote boy by default, it just bounced off of me. Um, I was just always a girl, no matter what I did or what expectations were put on me, if any. That said, I wasn't conditioned as a girl either because I wasn't seen that way. Um, when my gender unfolded and landed on womanhood in late adolescence, I had already missed all the developmental moments that would have been conditioned as girl. So I wasn't conditioned as a boy and I wasn't conditioned as a girl. It really helps me when people say child or childhood as it softens the edge of a childhood of being unseen, misattuned when going into somatic practices, trance, ritual, or healing space. I know some trans men who talk about their boyhoods and trans women talk about their girlhoods, but that's just the mental gymnastics cis-dominated society makes us go through, at least for me and the trans people with whom I choose to be in community. Um, I'll stop there. Okay, great. 
So then I received that. It's like Saturday morning of a big weekend because my son was graduating that day, had an AGM the next day. But I was like, oh, I need, I don't, I know I'm going to reread this email 50 times this weekend. So I know that I want to get back right away and I, and reassure that like I've received this and, and as best as I can. And I really want to talk about it. I don't want to email about it. So I was like, let's set up a time. You were like, yep. Yeah, okay. So we reconvened a couple days later. We had it over WhatsApp. So we're on our phones and we started that conversation with a little bit of like dosing the field with safeness, just, you know, the usual, like, you know, like, thank you for that. But also like, let's think about bringing in like competent protector types and <laughs> just like queuing, dosing the field with safeness. We've been in the numinous network together long enough to know that means like, let's call in not only our wisest selves and like, but our elders at the threshold and our competent protectors. And then I had said, Mishka, which is my term of endearment. Nobody else gets to call you that in the world, but that's what I had said. I'm sorry. It just came out. <laughs> it's like, I would normally say, would you like to invite somebody to this call? An actual person that could be like, witnessing us and um because I have often found that that actually that works great <laughs> like it's just really nice because I'm in the up power position and I want to have a genuine and honest conversation and there just isn't a way <laughs> like you know just very often isn't a way for somebody who has brought vulnerable feedback to really truly feel um secure enough to say what they feel and very often if there is a witness the person in up power is on better behavior let's be honest so like i know that <laughs> so it's like that that can be a safety factor because i was so distracted i hadn't thought of that until kind of the last minute but i was like oh damn i should have done that so what i said instead was would you like it recorded um, because sometimes we can get into these feedback conversations that go well at the time but then afterwards, we're like thinking about it, <laughs> ruminating and being like, wait, how did they really respond well? <laughs> so, so I offered. And how did that offer land for you? I wish actually that more people would do that. In this case, it actually felt like I know you to be somebody who has done so much power analysis. And that, like there is a lot like very acute awareness of the power that you do hold. And of course, um, yeah, it's tempered by you do hold other identities that um, also don't hold power. Um, and um, yeah, having done healing pods with you, taking the secure course, I sort of like, okay, Carmen has like really unpacked, like what is it, like power rank and privilege are really like at the fore of understanding how to like be in secure and right relationship with um, yourself and with others. Um, and so I actually didn't need that at all, but I do find often, you know, there's this trope of like the, sorry, I'm going to say a term that might be quite triggering for folks. So trans femmes, if you don't like this word, I'm so sorry. Um, but there is this trope of like the angry tranny, um, like throughout like mm. um, society, um, that we're all angry, we're all mm. pissed off. And um, what's up with these like angry trans girls? Um, and the reality <laughs> is, it's because like we're almost always in systems where we don't have power 
um, and we feel very powerless. And, um, you know, e even just something that should be so simple as like talking to your superior in the workplace, um, it's, it's that that already is a power imbalance. And then like, it's a cis white German man. And like, I'm a foreign trans woman, like, it's so mm -hmm. much. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, yeah, anger is actually sometimes the appropriate and right response that somebody who's holding privilege and isn't aware of their power. Um, I think I think what you say actually in the secure course is like, unawareness of power is abuse of power. And like, you just like punk mm -hmm. me and that's like period. You just punctuate that like, boom. <laughs> it's an abuse of power to not totally. be aware of your own power. Um, and so it was actually really interesting. I was like, oh, like, one of the few people I actually don't need this from is offering it. Why don't more people offer it? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, I feel I want to say I learned that from Holly Trular mm -hmm. and um, like full stop. And she's called me out on it. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm definitely a person who's like, I'm not always aware of my power, but sometimes it's more obvious. Obviously, somebody that I pay is in a down power position. And so, you know, that was a little bit of a gimme. I'm not going to take that too much. Um, okay, so we decided that, okay, so uh, that kind of, um, you know, a third party or collectivizing um, on your end didn't feel necessary. So we like proceeded. And I was like, okay, can we give this container to this conversation. How about I distill in like a sentence or two what I think I'm hearing in your email. And then you can distill in a sentence or two what you think you're hearing when I say, okay, so if you have received conditioning as boy or girl or teacher's pet or student or whatever it is, what what is coming up? And so you were like, yeah, let's go for it. So I said, okay, this is what I think I'm understanding you say, is that when I use the concept of conditioning, you don't resonate with that at all because your experience growing up was that you actually had a parent, your dad, who present so much like unconditional like um, love that you 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 just don't resonate with with those things and that having a third option of like child or some other kind of conditioning if if that's a word i need to use is really important to you and so um when i was sharing that uh in the podcast with nikaya there was a little bit of a brush off or minimization that like was acute it really it really hurt um, and I don't know if I said more, but that was like, essentially, I'm like, this is what I'm understanding. This concept doesn't really resonate with you. And when I was talking about it in that podcast, I was like diminishing something that was important to you in having other options. Have I got you? And <laughs> I just remember you like looking up to the sky and being like, yes so why did that bother me so much or you said something like that you're like wait a second <laughs> yes that is what, what I was thinking and so then I can't remember exactly how you responded um but I remember you bringing up it's something about I think it, maybe it also hurt because I was in that embodied attachment class with you Carmen 
and because I've been in co-healing pods with you and I've already brought feedback to you and Therese uh, because I was co-facilitating um, with Therese in that particular co-healing pod, Therese Couture, who we also totally love, dear friend. Um, I already brought feedback to you too and we've already essentially you were like, we've already had this conversation. Why are we still having this conversation? But, <laughs> and, and so is there anything I'm missing from your recollection of the conversation? I remember, yes, all of that. And I remember this moment of like, wait, so Carmen, Carmen is getting it. So what is it that, so what is it that I'm actually asking for? Because um, this is feedback that I've given already. And I remember like really sitting with like, okay, so what am I actually asking for? Because like, she does get it insofar, like we just have different lived experiences. So there's only like so much that we can extend toward each other to understand like, we, yeah, we just have different, like we, we intersect with this identity of woman, um, but we arrived at womanhood differently. Um, we have different backgrounds, we have different understandings. You shared a little bit um, from your experience of, I, you were wearing uniforms that I kind of assumed you were in Catholic Oh my school, gosh. But, can, yeah. No. Can I share what I shared yeah, yeah, with please. you? <laughs> okay. So I was like, okay, yeah. When I grew up, so I it wasn't a Catholic school, but it was a Anglican-based uh, boarding school that um, I was there on bursary. So it was all the richy rich kids and, and like me. <laughs> There were other, there were a few other of us who were like what's known as day students. We like lived next to the school or close. And so, but it was a boarding school that had been an all boys school for like a hundred years before I got there. So the year that I went in middle school was the first year that there were girls in, in my grade. And so we were only allowed to wear pants uh, after supper on weekdays and after lunch on weekends. So you had to wear like a kilt, a skirt, or a skirt. So there was like in any weather, in any, you were just like constantly in the like, so you are disadvantaged. <laughs> we're just like going to physiologically disadvantage you and make you uncomfortable and subject to the gaze no matter what. Um, and, and boys, quote, boys had to, they couldn't have their hair longer than the tops of their ears. So like there was such hyper, such control and policing of gender. And I had brought up about being a good student because that was like relevant to what I'm doing in embodied attachment is like trying to help people not push through signs of distress and be a good student. Do what Carmen says because she's t telling us the cue. When I was in high school, every three weeks, all the teachers would get together for a few hours and they would um, adjudicate each student and give us a plus, a neutral, or a minus. And plus was like, you are, you literally were, were given what's called diligence, which was like special privileges, like going home to see your parents and things like that on the weekend. So you'd be like a diligent student or just like an average, not even worth acknowledging student, or you would have a minus, which is like, you are on notice. And every three weeks they, that would be posted outside the cafeteria and the students would go to see, did I get diligence so that I can have like any measure of freedom? <laughs> so like the capitalist hierarchical patriarchy was like fucking drilled into me about being like performing excellence and doing like step getting in line. So that's, that's what I had shared with you about this is how I came to womanhood. <laughs> 
And as you were sharing all of that, I was thinking about the like, so I grew up in, in California um, in the 90s uh, into the aughts. Um, and it, yeah, there, there were all of the moments of thinking about like, what are my relationships to skirts? My relationships to skirts were like liberation. You know, I would sneak, like, I can't believe my sister never noticed. I like steal her makeup and skirts. And like the only way I could access my transness at the time um, and where I lived was through gay male culture, actually. And so like with my fake ID, sorry, dad, um, <laughs> uh, going to um, gay bars and like the one gay club that was nearby. Um, and um, yeah, packing a skirt, changing into it after I had like driven far enough away. Oh, that was another thing when I was 16, because like, it's just very part and parcel of a lot of like Californian life, not for everybody, of course, but um, there, I had access to a car and I had a driver's license when I was 16. So I would just like, yeah. So for me, like those things were like liberation, freedom, excitement, fun, sexiness, expansion into like possibility. And so then as you were sharing all of that, I was thinking, okay, we are like on like polar opposite ends of this. And that for me, that was sort of like, and this is like, and we're different and that's okay. Um, and now we get to have like, you know, um, a conversation where there's that tension because we're at a polarity, but actually that tension is gonna pull us into something really exciting. Um, and for me, that's where the conversation really began um, in terms of not just me giving feedback. Okay, but now we're in dialogue because like I understand something about mm. where you're coming from. Um, and now we're in like a relationscape. Like Erin Manning talks about these like from Montreal. She talks about like Delizian relationscapes. And, and it's like, yeah, now we're in something rhythmatic and spontaneous. And it's just gonna like really be generative. Um, and um, so as I was seeing the gap between your lived experience and my lived experience and really sensing into like, what is that tension there? I realized that like, actually the, this idea of like conditioned as boy or conditioned as girl means something very different for us. Um, and that was some of the feedback I actually gave um, in the co-healing pods to you and Therese um, was actually is like, I feel so welcomed in this space. Like, yeah, I think I'm the only out trans person in this group, but um, actually I feel so unbelievably safe. There's so much secure attachment here. Even the ability to give this feedback so openly and abundantly feels really like secure attachment. Um, what is it that actually bothers me? And it was the, 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 the rush to converge on agreement um, in order mm -hmm. to create coherence within the group or within, yeah. And for me, there's this moment in the co-healing pod and then when you were, we were on the phone and you were telling me about your experience in school, I was like, we, we've arrived somewhere where we have a shared identity and we, we arrived at it so differently and we have to hold that with so much tenderness. Um, and sometimes words are just gonna mean something totally different. So for me, when it was mm -hmm. sort of like, wait a second, Carmen's talking about conditioned as girl in that context. And that's really specific to your lived experience. In my lived experience, conditioned as a boy is hurled at me by TERFs, by um, trans-exclusionary, quote, radical feminists. Um, you know, wherein, oh, it gets hurled at all trans people on all different ends and their, their logic is this weird circular thing where like, 
you know, they, they start off with like trans women can't be women because we were conditioned as boys, we're just men in dresses. Um, and then they sort of reverse engineer that logic to apply it also to trans men where it's sort of like, you aren't actually, yeah, because you were conditioned as a girl, um, you're just reacting to your conditioning within the context of an oppressive patriarchy. You're not actually a man, you're just oppressed. Um, and mm. you're now a lost sister is what they often say. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, really gross. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, <laughs> I'm saying this, like, I had to say that it was gross, um, but like, I just wanna say like, that's gross. <laughs> and I just wanna make sure that like, everybody knows that I'm not saying yeah. this, like to endorse it at all. And I'm wondering like, oh, there actually might be some people who would hear that and be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And it's like, no, 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 wait, let's, we'll, wait, we'll have to unpack that in a different conversation. But let's just start with right. the agreement. It's a whole yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, Okay, uh, one, a thought that I also want to add to that was in the conversation as we started to approach this um, field around the word conditioning, you had said, oh, I was in that class and, and um, already offered this feedback to you and Therese. And that's when I was like, yeah, I know you were in that embodied attachment class because that's why I said, or student or teacher's pet, because I've learned from the feedback last time. And so when you started talking about, you know, there's something about, yeah, the rush to agreement, there's something about the word conditioning, I was like, oh, the word conditioning is just not a good cue. <laughs> like I was like, oh, that's just not very skillful because when I'm holding space in somatics, it's like hypnotherapy. Like there, yes, I want to be directive when we're in um, uh, that kind of space where people are kind of open and vulnerable. I want to be directive and clear about um, people continuing to track themselves. But I also want to be kind of vague and like open-ended and like choose your own adventure so that everybody feels like we can access it. And it actually isn't the same as, you know, there are plenty of times where I'm like, and if you're a person who experiences neurodivergence and like vocal prosody doesn't work for you, blah, 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 blah. So all the people who are neurotypical um, are like, yeah, that's cool. She's saying a cue for someone else and I'm not triggered by that. But when I say the word conditioning, that is triggering a, a cultural story that I'm not tracking very carefully. And now Orly's had to tell me two times and I'm like piecing together like, oh, that's just not skillful of me. So I started to kind of like, like the, the, the Tetris things thing happened where you're like, oh, things are falling into place for me and my understanding that like, I need to use a word that is what I mean and not kind of have like, oh, that's shorthand for an understanding we're all going to have. It's like, actually, this word I should know has an entire kind of history and subculture that I'm not tracking. It's, it's, it, I'm kind of vague, I'm aware of, but not in a nuanced way. So I need to think about what am I talking about? I'm talking about the imposition of things. I'm talking about projection of social conditions, but I, but I can say projection imposed. If you've been encouraged to, if you've been, if you've had enforcement of certain roles, there's like other language that I could be using around that. And that was like a huge aha moment for me then. Cause I was like, I thought I was 
doing the right thing by being inclusive and adding this like other option. But it turns out that from an emotional perspective and an attachment perspective, it's, it, it I'm not, I'm not going to say it wasn't having um, a, a third way or like a non-binary option that obviously is important to, to, to a degree, but like in this situation underneath it, it's that you as my friend, you as a person with trans experience are saying, no, I have the epistemic privilege, meaning I have the perspective and the experience to be able to tell you, you are not tracking this accurately. This is still painful for me. And when I'm in a vulnerable space, I'm putting words in your mouth, but this is what I'm understanding. When I'm in that vulnerable space, if I'm doing like my nervous system healing work and I want to say no to something, I don't want to say no to you, Carmen. I want to say no to a concept. And this is confusing for me because I, because I love you, but what you're saying to me is a no for me. You nailed it. That's what I was getting. Yeah. yeah okay. That's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I did have that. Yeah. I did have that moment of like, oh, so because I don't, I don't remember in, in um, the thing about the student. I, I just, which is probably because you sort of latch on to like the thing that you need to problem solve, right? That's like how our minds work, <laughs> right. right? And so I just heard condition this boy, like saying no to condition this boy, condition this girl, and like this is you know you can do like bringing on the arms, saying no, and pulling in, mm-hmm. yeah, pushing away, yeah, yeah. and I. It's a whole thing we do, folks. It's, you can't see us, but we're like pushing away with our arms. I can say no to what I want to say no to. I can say yes to what I want to say yes to. Yeah. <laughs> and I did have a little bit of, okay, I don't have what's been offered. I don't have anything to say no to because it doesn't actually apply or um, resonate with my lived experience. So there was a little bit of like, so I'm saying no to not being able to say no. And that's kind of, yeah, I don't want to say no to Carmen. Um, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so actually this is a little bit, um, it does sort of like lead into another topic that we were talking about, which was, um, like, um, we started talking about, um, youth trans culture, um, how I'm a little bit of like a trans granny at this point. Um, and totally, we were talking about, I wanted to ask you about like, let's talk about aging out of youth culture where like, you know, it's like, yeah, this is like, I'm of a cultural zeitgeist or a moment or, and, and then it's like, oh, that, no, I'm not hip to the lingo anymore. So like, I'm very curious about what it's like for you now engaging with people with trans experience versus when you first came out and like what you started sharing with me about that at the end of our um, feedback call. So my experience with building community, especially for trans feminine people, um, um, started out being for trans women that has evolved and changed and become much more um, expensive and broad um, in terms of what that means um, through getting a lot of feedback, um, especially from like folks in their 20s. Um, and and sometimes, sometimes I stand by, actually this group is for trans women and we have a very specific experience wherein um, I, so, um, I have been expressing my transness for so long that um, like one of the jokes I said to you on that call was, I still refer to myself as transsexual. That's how long I've been out. Um, I'm kind of like, that's such a dinosaur term. And um, for a lot of people, it's actually like cringe. Um, for me, it has like a very, very historical and political backgrounding that's super important. And there are spaces that I create for transsexual women. And I'm very specific about that, where it's sort of like we have a very specific 
um, legal, political, um, medical, and social experience. We, we like, in, within these three spheres of trans experience, we, we experience something super specific. Um, and I actually want to create space for the people who experience that to talk about our experiences. Sometimes it, it gets mm. fleshed out and, you know, <clears throat> it might be for um, trans feminine folks who are non-binary, they have no interest in a medical trans experience, but they still have, you know, within those three spheres of they have like some political investment in um, identifying as trans or that they, they've changed their social presentation in some way. And so as I started creating communities that were going to be a little bit more fleshed out and weren't so oriented around these three spheres of experience, you know, and that also meant <clears throat> that I was going to as a facilitator, as someone who is trained in holding group space, um, I I knew that it was sort of going to be when I would start these groups, um, I didn't want to be like the boss of the group, but there was going to be like a moment of like, okay, I've been doing this a while, like building groups, I've been doing the trans thing for a while. I am going to like set the tone and build a culture. Um, and that worked for like, my mid and late 20s <clears throat> at a certain point i actually had to realize that once i got into my 30s what was happening was the tone and the culture that i was wanting to establish sort of stopped in terms of its relevance for the people who are showing up at the sort of like facilitator stuff once it really came down to like trans lived experience the people in their early 20s were bringing something completely different. Even this idea of, okay, this group is for trans women, no backup from that, it's actually for trans femmes. Okay, but what does that mean? Um, okay, so let's actually define it in terms of, you know, this way that also includes non-binary people. Um, and okay, now what is this group even anymore? So when basically when younger folks started um, showing up to these groups and we started exploding these definitions, um, I kind of realized that actually, like, I could be there as facilitator holding space, but actually I really needed to step back in terms of what was happening culturally. So the cultural production was actually going to be up to younger people. And that's where I really had this moment of realizing, okay, actually, I do hold something very important. So for me, in my early days, um, you know, my friend, I learned how to start trans feminine support groups through my friend Imogen. And... I would watch her and she would model secure attachment and she would like close the door on like cis heterodominance and we could just as like queer trans femmes get together and talk about our experiences. And it really helped me start unpacking like, oh, this is why I experience the world the way I do. And like, that's because I have reflection and like I'm being mirrored and I'm being seen accurately. And this is amazing. Um, <laughs> and she was also a trained facilitator and a therapist. She's a clinical therapist. And counseling therapist, there's a difference. Um, I have been told. And yes, yeah, so I just learned that there's this way of holding space that's just, it's so tender and so simple. And there's so much integrity around holding that space that allows trans sons to really step into, because we've been told most of our childhoods that like what we think and feel and want and desire is wrong, bad or stupid. Um, mm -hmm. And then on top of that, once we get old enough to figure out, like, actually, I hold a trans identity, um, we also then realize that, like, we're the butt of the joke. Like, pretty much every film or sitcom that's ever, like, referenced trans people, especially trans women, has been, like, how funny it is that, like, mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. trans women in the world. 
if we're if we're acknowledged at all in those like ways of like um, uh, mass culture being presented. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd be actually curious to talk to her. She's about ten years older than me, and the people that I'm facilitating groups for now are about ten years younger than me. And so now mm-hmm. there's actually like a generational flow. Um, mm-hmm. And I wonder how she feels about being in like transcend spaces with like the whippersnappers. And like, she's she's now probably holding space in a very different way. And like, mm. I feel like I definitely had to like step back at a certain point where it's absurd to say as a 34 year old, that within the context of trans feminine communities where we are bereft of elders, I at 34 am a trans elder. Mm-hmm. That, that's absurd and not okay. Um, <laughs> I'm not equipped to step into mm. like, trans middle age but here I am um and there is this like um there's this delicate balance of I am holding a legacy I'm holding something really important there's these trans femme folks are going to approach numerous thresholds sometimes daily you know there's Mm. There's so much, um, do I even want to do this and be here? <laughs> um, because mm-hmm. of how hard mm-hmm. it is sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm holding that. And also just the pure wonder of trans people are such experts at cultural production because we have to, because so many, so many of our elders are dead and gone or surviving themselves. or And so we become experts at generating. And that's why trans culture is constantly changing and changing so fast at breakneck speed. Mm. Trans culture is changing all of the time because we have to to survive. And it's beautiful. And at the same time, it can be really destabilizing and uncertain. And like, I I often find myself just baffled by like, wow, we don't use that term anymore. Okay. Or we're not talking (laughs) about our experiences that way anymore. Or it's not cool to do this thing anymore. Well, when I was trans baby, you know, in the arts, it totally was. And like, right. yeah, um, and maybe it was even radical to do that. But like 10 years <laughs> later, here we are. And it's like, I'm a dinosaur. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that mm-hmm. maybe that like those ways of producing culture um, happen maybe with like um, a little bit more slowly or the, the shadow side of that is um, that maybe in non-trans communities, um, they happen with a little bit more integrity. Um, because there's a little bit more holding and a little bit more accountability and more elders at the threshold saying. In an ideal yeah. situation. Of yeah. course, of course. It, it, there's, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, but I really, I hear what you're saying, that there's, um, yeah. So this, this is fabulous to think about production of culture. And um, yeah, in the Spirited Kitchen, you know, I only had so many words, but I tried to touch on how like the rituals that we need today are not the same as the rituals that they needed in the 11th century and the, even the 19th century. And, you know, from what you're saying, it's and, and what I also am experiencing, they're not the same rituals we needed 25 years ago. You know, like, and maybe every generation can say that, but I don't think so, because I don't think humans have ever lived in an ecosystem that was so hostile to um, homo sapien survival. (laughs) So I just think we're, we're just, there's like a different kind of um, liminality and a different kind of um, uh, uh, almost like um, mythic quality to it. It it really is. (laughs) It's like a different mythic quality of collective um, peril. So 
given that you are on that growth edge of like generating culture that's going to be so needed. And let's say we embrace, we proceed as though it's like, yep, we're we're all going to acknowledge how important it is that uh, we learn from trans culture about how to generate culture quickly and on the fly and iterate as we go, (laughs) because we don't have so much time. What kinds of rites of passage do you wish there were for women who don't adhere to cis-heteronormative patriarchy's ideas of what makes a woman or a mother or a leader? Because I'm hearing your experience. I'm also hearing it echoed in, you know, cis women who are choosing not to have children. And they might choose to not have children for lots of different reasons, but I think we'd be remiss if we didn't say it's because, A, it's impossible to have a child unless you're pretty wealthy or very poor. You know, like, it's just like, there's, there's like, if you're actually given the choice, how many options do you really have? It's such a capitalist dilemma. Um, But also, what if you just don't fucking want to? What if you just decide you just like don't want to? And and, and again, that could be because of existential peril or actual um, great extinction stuff. But it could also just be like, I, it's just not my jam. I feel like I have cis women all the time saying that to me. I just don't want to. And so what are my options um, if it's not mother or if it's not um, a coupled partnership? Maybe I want a different kind of relational arrangement, whatever it is. It's like, okay, here's Orly, who's like culture generating experience. What do you wish there was or was available? So when I medically transitioned, it happened in a very short period of time, because like I said, I had this period where I had um, access and I wanted to maximize on, okay, this is actually a window that I might not have again. Um, And so things moved really, really quickly. Um, I eventually had a surgery that I maybe wasn't actually like psychosomatically ready for. Um, and a lot of that was around, you know, there's so much narrative around, um, yeah, trans women going in for vaginoplasty and, you know, there's supposed to be joy because it's finally right. And you're going to wake up from the surgery with a smile on your face. And it's like your second chance at life. And there's all of this like, um, pageantry around like what you're supposed (laughs) to think and feel and experience through that. It was horrible. Like, and, and like, I, I know that there are like tons of like trans women who just want to like string me up right now because I'm like a prayas. But for me, it was horrible. Um, I do not regret the surgery at all. It was the most life affirming thing I've ever done. Um, it was also the most excruciating pain I've ever been in that I was 0% prepared for. Why was mm. I 0% prepared for it? I didn't have other trans women in my life who had gone through it. Um, mm-hmm. It was something that was totally like I had some trans women in my life for sure. And they could help me with some of the like social stuff or like a trans woman taught me how to wear makeup. Um, and yeah, so there was some of like those things that like helped me um, like survive on the day to day. Then it really came down to it. It was like, actually like I, through choices, of course, but also through privilege, um, have this access that not all trans women have. I'm about to do something that a very, very, very small percent as a very small subsection of the population will ever go through. Um, 
And I really, I found myself after that experience, I really wanted, um, I decided after that, I was going to like always be the person I needed at that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is something to be said about like sort of like death doula process around like Mm. there is a dying process that needs to happen before going in to have those really painful experiences that yes, are life affirming and life saving sometimes. Mm -hmm. and it's hard Mm -hmm. and it's going Mm -hmm. to be like um an underworld journey it's Mm -hmm. persephone it's it's all of these Mm -hmm. um really really hard things that um demand require and deserve ritual to hold and support um and the aftercare i needed Mm -hmm. someone to like hold me and say you're really emotional right now that's your nervous system going crazy um mm-hmm. you're not able to regulate your emotions right now that's because you're on like massive amounts of painkillers and that's totally normal girl like totally you're not going to be able to regulate your emotions while on painkillers mm-hmm. I didn't mm-hmm. know that <laughs> mm-hmm. um like even just those little things just that to be able to like reflect and validate and say like and just holding with a little bit more integrity the experiences where unfortunately a lot of trans folks are sort of on the ragged edge you know kind of like the mm-hmm. like figuring it out and that's changing of course um, but more ritual going into and ceremony after to really like hold those things. Yes. And I didn't ultimately get it from trans women. I ultimately got it from my dear friend um, who's still holding full moon groups. She's been like holding mm-hmm. down the fort in Vermont um, for 30 years now. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> my friend Leslie, hey, call out to Leslie in Brattleboro. Mm-hmm. Thank you for including me in full moon circles where I had like rhythm with other women, um, many of them menopausal. So they were also experiencing life change with regard to their gender. Um, and I just was so held in sisterhood. Um, even, so even though I didn't have the ritual leading up to and I was not at all prepared for it, there were sisters at the threshold ready to pick me up. They had a non-trans experience, but it made all the difference. Um, mm. And the shared rhythm and the the container of the consistency of that as well um, was so, Mm. so important. And Mm. I did have these moments where I was like, y'all don't have any idea. You have no idea. (laughs) And that's Mm. also okay. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I am so held and so witnessed. um, And it was extremely healing. Um, Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you're really talking about something that, um, yeah, uh, the culture, there's, we're bereft of spiritual eldership for sure, especially if um, a person grew up like without any spiritual context, you know? I, I mean, I, I grew up at like an Anglican based boarding school. So I at least had a little bit of access to witnessing some of what ritual can do, how moving shared rhythm can be, how um, emotionally connective everybody singing at the same time or like standing or sitting at the same time or, you know, like just that kind of shared rhythm is so important. Of course, we talk about it in co-healing pods. Of course, we talk about it on Quest, but you're like evoking, I think, a yearning that so many secular people have that don't they don't know it's like it's hard to lament for a void that you don't know what's supposed to be there um and very often it is something it's contact nutrition right it's like people who are like listening and mirroring and um in shared rhythm and um 
yeah, like really affirming kindly that you matter and your experience matters. And even if they haven't had your experience, they see that you are going through an experience (laughs) that needs to be held and they're tracking you. Um, And I love that you said, you know, I became the person that I needed to be. I think all of us who are holding space for others going through stuff have had to do that, right? Like we're becoming the person that we needed and wanted. We just need more of us, you know? Um, Yeah. Yeah. So given all of what you've shared, the last question, as always, how do you cope with the grief and maybe the rage of that orally? Writing has been super important. Um, I've been working on a book for about four years. Um, I've been reassured that for a person who's working on their first fiction, that it it might take five years, it might take six years. You just kind of keep chipping away at it. Um, mm-hmm. And it really started from um, this like place of really working through some trauma through writing and like short stories. And then it was like, oh, this is actually going somewhere and started putting it into mm-hmm. book form. Writing has been really important. Any sort of creative expression, um, singing in groups, um, toning mm-hmm. in groups. Um, and that, yeah, exactly, contact nutrition and not to like sort of like plug the numinous network, um, but also the numinous network, um, doing the quest work, seeing how the quest work intersects with um, attachment theory, um, how so much of um, contact nutrition within the network is also very trauma informed. A lot of my um, training um, in terms of meditation um, did not equip me for the trauma that I was going to experience. Um, mm-hmm. like taking some deep breaths and going into the body, forget about it when you're in pain or when you when yeah. your nervous system is going crazy. No, you need mm-hmm. some different strategies. Um, mm-hmm. And I really like had access to that um, in the early days of the Numinous Network and it's only expanded since then. Um, mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and also, um, yeah, the correlation of, there was this really amazing thing where I was doing my quest work in the fall and really, really went deeply into the rituals of all of that while taking the secure course and being in a co-healing pod. And there was just <laughs> wow, this that's like- that's a lot of containing. <laughs> so much containing, but in that containing, able to just swirl and clean up and move out. Mm-hmm. And um, there, because of that safe container, there, so much could transform. Um, mm-hmm. And so for me, actually, um, the Numinous Network has been really important uh, for mm-hmm. my transformation um, and really, mm-hmm. And, and now I can go back to my walking meditation or I can go back to the cushion and sit because my mm. nervous system is tonified and regulated and I have enough mm. um, co-regulation in my life um, that those practices mm. now have importance again. Um, mm. Yeah, where they didn't mm. for years. That's so nice to hear. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I didn't, we didn't plan that. That's so nice. No, Thank that you. Impromptu yeah. and, <laughs> from the heart. <laughs> mm, thank you. Thank you for sharing so much. Um, uh, you know, you are an endlessly fascinating person. I mean, I think anyone, you know, who's, <laughs> who shares what you've just shared very intimately, first of all, before we close, I want to say um, thank you for entrusting um, me and numinous listeners with your experience. Um, that sounds really lonely at least at first. And I'm so thankful to Leslie and the group of sisters, you know, that held you. Um, and I'm so glad that there's a, another iteration of that with, with the network that you and I get to um, collaborate and co-create spaces that 
might be a little bit like that or might be a little bit like what 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 we think is needed <laughs> in the world a little bit of it anyway at least a like a foothold yeah. um so so thank you for that but even if you didn't have that trans experience you just described and the experience of um like even, I, I feel like I, we could just talk about you having a BFA and doing dance in New York like I, I feel like we could talk about you spending a, a year in contemplation at Plum Village we could talk about like your relationship with your dad and how he's such a teddy bear who just like loved you and didn't impose cis heteropatriarchy on you there's like really truly endlessly fascinating individual I'm so grateful for um you know I just remember you sent me an email one day because you listened to the podcast and I was like wow this person's pretty cool so thank you thanks for being in my life thanks for being my friend it has been one of the rarest honors of my life to meet you, Carmen. And yeah. something that I, I do want to share, which is an honoring of ancestry, just to end here a nice button was, I think I told you once how I found you or it, my grandfather had died. And there's this idea um, that um, grandparents visit their grandchildren after death. Um, and I had a visitation and he visited me and he said some pretty cryptic things. And one of the things he said was, seek out the ray. And I didn't know what that meant. I thought maybe ray of light, maybe blah, blah, blah. Three months later, I came across the Numinous podcast. And on one of the episodes, you talked about being Carmen Ray Spaniola. And I, I knew that my ancestors had my back and were leading me to you and your work. And I'm so grateful, endlessly grateful yeah. for everything you. that you've brought into my life. Mm. Yeah. Oh, so much love. <laughs> Thanks for being here. <laughs>